0: Sammy, and welcome to episode 5 of Hey Chef. Today, I am talking to iconic Baltimore chef, Jerry Pellegrino. He is currently the owner of Scola, a hands-on cooking school, and the owner of Strickland Hollow Farm and Distillery. We talk about the pandemic's impact on the restaurant industry, discuss his WYPR talk show, Radio Kitchen, learn the science of making hard cider, and more. So, let's get into it. Here is Hey Chef. Hi, Chef. So happy to hey. finally have you on the show. Yes. <laughs> Been a little bit of
1: uh, some obstacles lately.
0: Yes, definitely. So uh, let's just get right into it. So Scola, your cooking school. Yes. Right before the pandemic, I went uh, to Scola and we made Cuban cuisine. We made... Yep. Uh, Ropa Vieja, which is basically, for people who do not know, it's shredded pork and um, like a sauce, right? With like beans and rice.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty common dish all around Latin America and the islands. But yeah, it's basically braised beef. It means it It actually literally translated into old rags. Okay. Is the sort of the, the translation. But yeah, it's a, it's a pretty common dish. Served over rice everywhere, including Cuba.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I read that. I think it's the national dish. Yeah. I think in Cuba it certainly is. Yeah. We also made, uh, croquettes and flan that was like to die for. That was really good. (laughs) Yeah. That's a lot of fun. Yep. Okay. So what inspired you to start a cooking school in Baltimore?
1: Well, you know, prior to that, I owned some restaurants Mm -hmm. and, uh, I sort of got a late start in life in terms of restaurant tour and being a chef and, um, and so I had, I had the restaurants for about 15 years and I was getting tired a little bit of a uh, sort of the daily grind and, um, the long hours and just a lot of hard work. And so I actually sort of stepped away, kind of put myself in retirement, so to say for a little while and sat around and figured out what my next move would be. Um, we had always taught a few cooking classes at the restaurants, you know, um, mm-hmm kind of maybe a couple a month on nights we were closed and they were always a big success and I truly like to teach and to be around people who want to learn so you know my partner chef Amy Von Lang and myself had talked about the possibility of a cooking school years before but it, in my crazy world of restaurant touring it, it didn't make sense now that I could mm. devote some time to it, it it seemed like a pretty logical progression the next move and so um so I guess about five years ago in June, we pulled the trigger, and uh, nice. we've been having a grand time ever since.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and obviously, you teach dishes from around the world, uh, which I absolutely yeah. love. I love to make tequenos, mochi, sushi, you know, things from all around the world, mm-hmm. empanadas. Um, mm-hmm. So why did you decide to use global cuisine at your school?
1: Well, we teach over 300 different classes at the Dang. school. There's a whole a whole technique series, you know, which focuses on specific techniques such as making pasta or baking bread or, or making sushi. But there also is an entire regional series of cuisines from around the world. And so that the Cuban class fits into that series, which, you know, which is great. I mean, a lot of people want to learn about the different cuisines and ingredients and techniques that people use globally.
0: So do you have a favorite cuisine?
1: Well, you know, the last name Pellegrino, it's kind of <laughs> hard to say that I don't love Italian food. Um <laughs> I think I'd get my, my Italian card taken away if I didn't say that. Um, but uh, it's been a great experience. I think when you're a chef and you own a restaurant or if you were, say, the chef at a restaurant, usually a restaurant has a specific focus, yeah. whether it be French or Italian or modern American or whatever. You're sort of you do that almost in a groundhog day type of way, you know, every day, every meal. Um, it, it was great. I think I've learned more in the five years we, we've owned Skola than in the 15 years I was a chef and a restaurateur because uh, you don't tend to look outside of the box that your restaurant is stuck in. And so it's been a lot of fun to explore all these different things, which I really never got to do you know, before. So it's been great.
0: Awesome. So you've been a chef in Baltimore for a long time, like 15 years. Can you tell me about your time here as a chef?
1: Uh, so I guess I started working in restaurants in 1995 and opened my first one, which was Corks in 1997. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, there weren't a lot of us. There were um, Baltimore had a handful of continental old standbys, um, Chesapeake House, Gampy's, uh, the Polo Grill, um, a few steakhouses like the Prime Rib,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Marconi's. Um, I know I feel bad if, oh, oh, Morris Mardyx, those were, um, those were sort of old style continental cuisine restaurants, um, that were great. I mean, people in Baltimore loved them. They, mm-hmm. they often focused on large portions, mm-hmm. um, which was something not just in Baltimore, but back then <clears throat> people going out to restaurants, thought was a staple of a good place yeah um and then a few of us kind of came along there was spike jerdy at had spike and charlie's and tony foreman and cindy wolf who actually had savannah back then
2: to
1: mm-hmm. um, myself uh, we started doing a more modern type of cuisine the those those old school restaurants they did what we called chinette plating Mm-hmm. Um, if you know, the, uh, old paper plates, the China plates with three compartments, uh-huh. there was a big one for the protein and then one for the oh. starch and <laughs> one for the vegetable, you know? Yeah. That was kind of the cuisine back then. It was, we mm. call it Chinette food. Um, we started, um, making smaller portions and making more, um, intricate plate presentations, mm-hmm. which we, by the way, got criticized for early on. Mm. There are some articles, um, that were written in, in back in the late 90s about how portions are small and how, you know, <laughs> food is fanciful. We also, back then, there weren't any restaurants really focusing on wine. Mm. Um, and so the three of us, we actually had very serious wine lists that were devoid of the mainstream, you know, Mondavi, Gallo, Dubuff, Not that they're bad wines, they're good wines that were easy to write a wine list, but we also struck out and tried to support smaller, now the buzzwords would be handcrafted artisanal producers. And then we had large lists that had great wines, and so that was in the 90s. That that obviously now, there are a hundred places like that in Baltimore. Um, A lot of the people owning and running them worked for one of the three of us, or all of us at one Mm -hmm. point. The food scene in Baltimore has... It evolved dramatically. I mean, there, yeah. there's the type of place I was describing. You, there's a there there's a bunch of them in every neighborhood around the city, including mm-hmm. neighborhoods that I didn't even know existed back then, <laughs> like Station North and and all these places. So anyway, it, it's been fun to watch the scene grow up a bit.
0: Yeah. So obviously, you really helped start the Baltimore food scene. <laughs>
1: A little bit. You know, that's what people say. We were just uh, we were just having fun cooking and (laughs) and staying up late night and chatting with each other over wine.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that sounds like fun. (laughs) Well, obviously, I can't drink wine. (laughs) Not yet. You will. Uh, So I read that you're from New York. I love the New York food. Yes. I'm sure you probably do as well. Uh, Like great restaurants like Eleven Madison Park, uh, Le Bernardin and so on, like per se. So why did you come to Baltimore to start? having restaurants there?
1: You know, my original career path, I was originally a molecular geneticist. I mm-hmm. was a scientist. And uh, I went to Johns Hopkins and was at the med school uh, studying for my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I moved to Baltimore. I, I, at that point, I was, um, we say I was in the restaurant business, but I was on the consumer side back then. Um, I wasn't involved and I wasn't even thinking about having a restaurant when I came to Baltimore in 1988 to start at Hopkins. Okay.
2: Um,
1: it was only over the six years that I spent at Hopkins that I slowly found out that my hobby, which was eating and drinking, mm-hmm. eventually became my passion and my career path. And my love of science became more of my hobby. And okay. so I was, I was already in Baltimore and, uh, actually really loved the city and mm-hmm. still do. I mean, I've been there over 30 years now and, uh, um, although I don't live there full time anymore, I still have my home there in Federal Hill and I still have the cooking mm-hmm. school and still go back, um, you know, all the time to spend time in the city and, and eat out at all the cool places that are now popping up around the city.
0: Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm also interested in science, like microbiology specifically. Like, sure. If people who don't know, like uh, bacteria, microbes, viruses, and I like to apply that into fermentation, like, uh-huh. like kombucha and pickles and other fermented vegetables. Yeah. So I read that you brew hard cider. Is that similar to like kombucha where there's like a mother, or can you explain the process?
1: Well, I mean, up here in the Catskills, we own a a cider apple farm, Mm -hmm. and we grow cider apples, and we also own a distillery. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the first part of distilling things we make, which are apple brandy, um, we make apple grappa, and we make uh, pomo. Mm-hmm. The first step is to take, harvest the apples and press the juice and ferment that into a hard cider. And so, um, it's basically the same process that you use to make wine, except mm-hmm. you're starting with grapes, or to make beer, except you're starting with grain. It, it's just a, the fermentation pathway of yeast. Um, converting sugar into carbon dioxide and ethanol and Mm -hmm. a mother is not exactly what what we would call it it's more Mm of um it's more of just adding yeast we we culture our own yeast but uh um it's it's just fermentation at at its best
0: cool so you're talking about brandy uh and a few other ones i don't remember but what are the differences between them well, so what we
1: make is uh, is a, a Calvado style apple brandy. And what mm. that is, is um, it's the juice of the apples fermented into cider and then distilled and aged in oak for mm. two, two to four years. Um, that's right. the first thing we make. We make what the government wants to call a pumice brandy. But if you were in Italy, it'd probably be called grappa,
2: mm.
1: which is after we press the grapes, we take the solids, which now don't have any juice because we've pressed that out to make the cider. And we re-ferment the solids and, and repress them and distill that into um, pumice brandy or an apple grappa that we age mm-hmm. in oak. And then pomo that we make is basically the exact same thing as port, but with apples instead of grapes. It's okay. basically apple juice that's fortified with a distilled spirit, which we make from apple solids. And that that's a dessert style wine. Pomo mm-hmm. is, since it's juice fortified, it um, has its natural sweetness from the apples. And so, it's about twenty percent alcohol,
2: okay. as
1: opposed to the brandy, which is forty percent alcohol.
2: Uh, okay, um, and it's it's
1: usually drank after dinner. Although I enjoy a little bit before dinner, <laughs> also. So those are the three things we make, and we also make gin from the sap of all the hundred-year-old maple trees on the property. So we wow. have a substantial maple grove, and we harvest sap from those guys in March and April, late March, early April. And then we distill that and make gin out of that, so we make gin also.
0: Awesome, I can see yeah. behind you. Hu- yes, huge tanks and pipes and like a those barrel. Are the, yeah, those are the
1: yeah, those are the stills and some of the barrels. I'm. It's the best. It's the most quiet place on the farm is to be sitting <laughs> in the distillery. So that's where I like to do these zoom things. Um, but yes, to to. I guess my right, which would be your left. That mm-hmm. is a big pot still. That's what we make the brandy out of. This awesome. This column still behind me is where we make the gin and the grappa, and that's one of the barrels. There's a that's a stack of barrels everywhere. Oh, wow. There's some huge stacks, barrels. stacks everywhere else around the distillery, full of spirit aging in the barrels.
0: Obviously, people who are listening yep. can't really see that, but like huge oak barrels uh, lined and stacked yep. on each other looks awesome. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a fun place to be, for sure. Awesome. So, obviously, you have an apple orchard. Do you grow anything else?
1: Uh, we've got uh, 10 blueberry bushes mm-hmm. and a substantial vegetable garden, but that's mm-hmm. purely for uh, home use. The, mm-hmm. the commercial part of the project is, um, is cider apples. We have um, about 320 trees on a one-and-a-half-acre orchard that are new. And then we have 40 hundred-year-old trees on an acre orchard in the back of the property that obviously we didn't plant, but we inherited when we bought the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're part of our, uh, our program also. They're great apples.
0: Mm-hmm. Do they all produce?
1: So apples tend to be a little biannual. So, trees, especially the bigger, older ones, don't tend to produce every year. They produce mm-hmm. every other year. So, but it, they're not in sync. Okay. We get apples, it's not like one year they all don't make them and the other next year they all do. They, they, some do, some don't. So, we harvest anywhere from two to 4,000 pounds um, annually. And we do, um, for the Pomo, not to get too complicated, we do buy the Pomo, we buy apples from our friend down the road at Stone Line Orchard. He has uh, his. David and Missy, those guys have a great modern cider apple orchard that we buy um, fruit from those guys too when we when we make ours products.
0: Cool. So, is there yeah. anything very interesting in your uh, garden this year? Well, yeah,
1: we we grow all the all the staples. I don't know. I mean, in the old days, it might be interesting, but nowadays everybody knows what heirloom varieties and all sorts of things are. You know, we have a big herb garden. You know, standard stuff in the spring and fall radishes lettuces mm-hmm. turnips zucchini tomatoes eggplant all different types of peppers um, you know the whole the whole 9 yards
0: <laughs> nice what's your favorite time of year for uh, produce
1: oh i i love all the season i think one of the things not to harp on the old days or
0: <laughs>
2: or
1: you know back back in the in the old restaurants they had the same menu you know the whole year yeah um and of course even though I think it's the beautiful thing about steakhouses, you know they have the same menu for thirty years, never wow. change the menu. But you know, a lot of us started thinking about cooking seasonally, and I think, you know, I I don't think I could be a chef in one of those restaurants where uh, the menu never changed. It's yeah, that's... you know, it's like it's like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, <laughs> just just too much. Yeah, so it seems uh, a I I think the beauty of the beauty of seasons is that. Just as you're getting super tired of one thing, it's time for it to go away and something else comes around. And so I think I get excited about the start of each season um, and what's coming in the garden when um, that makes it that makes it fun.
0: Cool. So I've been listening to your show Radio Kitchen on WIP uh, yeah with uh, yep. Al Spoer and uh, like yeah. the, the most recent episode was uh, about cobblers. I actually just made yeah. one. I thought it was like, cool. cr- like, I've never made one before. I thought it was crazy how you uh, put the, the batter in the bottom and then the peaches on top and then the batter yeah. goes all the way to the top. Like, how does that, do you know how that works?
1: <laughs> do I know how that works? Sure. Um, you know, as the, so as the, um, the butter in the batter starts to melt, it gives off steam, which also produces air pockets and that, that air, just like bubbles in a soda, rises to the top. It pulls as the dough heats up, it pulls the dough to the top. Um, the whole idea, what, what what's cool about it is it, it mixes the fruit with the juices that are dripping through the bottom and the corn starts to give you up that lovely thick consistency mm-hmm. underneath that crust that's risen to the top because it is hot air rises and the air pockets in the dough rise it up to the top. So just as the souffle rises up from the mm-hmm. dish, that dough rises up through the through the fruit and makes that topping just delicious and lovely but you get that turbulence as it does it that mixes everything up and, and gets a nice thick sauce in the bottom it's a the cool dish yeah it, Had really it be invented by somebody who made a mistake the first time <laughs> and realized it worked no doubt because there's yeah. no way that's how you would do it if you were thinking
0: yeah <laughs> maybe a scientist or something or maybe just probably yeah. an accident like you said uh so back to the show, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh uh,
1: yeah, I mean that that show is now in its 19th year on the radio. So yeah, um, wow. we started c- quite a while ago, but uh, the history of of WYPR, which is basically 88.1 FM, used to it used to be WJHU, which was mm. the John Hopkins ah. University's school radio station. And I whatever whatever 19 years ago, I don't mm. remember the date, but... um it was purchased you know hopkins decided they weren't interested in it anymore and it was purchased by an independent group who um who wanted to focus on on local content um public radio you have the option of buying sort of national content and and why and ypr still does you know the national shows like all things considered and Mm -hmm. um you know what used to be car talk but those types of shows they're all purchased but you also have the option to publish local content and Hopkins had sort of let the, the station just become 100% purchased content, except for actually Mark Steiner's show during the day and Andy Beanstock's jazz show at night. And maybe a few others. I'm I'm apologize if I'm leaving other a few others out. But that was mm-hmm. it. And then when the new group took over, they wanted to focus on local content, so they they launched all these local shows. And Al had already been doing the show with Hugh Sisson on ypr called seller notes and uh and al asked me al and i had become friends over the years because he was a regular at the restaurant said hey looks like we're gonna do some local content would you like to do do the show with me and i said sure that'd be great so uh you know fast forward 19 years al and i are still doing it so it's fun that's
2: that's
0: this history yeah awesome yeah so you said you love eating and drinking wine uh where did where did that love come from
1: well, you know, back to my Italian heritage, my father went to work and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, we obviously, when dad got home, my sister, mom, and dad and I all sat down to eat. Um, mm-hmm. We ate dinner together pretty much every night.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my parents always drank wine at the table.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, back then, uh, it was what, you know, most families, Italian families drank. It was jug wine, you know, big
2: mm-hmm.
1: or Gallo-Hardy Burgundy or, or Carlo Rossi, you um, you know, they each had one glass with dinner. My my mm-hmm. dad's glass was like a thirty two ounce goblet. You know, and my mom's <laughs> glass was like twenty four ounces. But they each only had one of those.
2: Okay.
1: Um. And and we ate dinner. And and slowly but surely, you, I realized that the the idea of sitting down to eat together is not just about the food, but it's about sticking you know together as a family and having a yeah. time when you can talk and. And, you know, work out any issues and get advice or get in arguments or, you know, learn, learn new things. And and so um, food to me has always been uh, not just to keep, you know, energy in my body. It's always been a reason to sit down and spend time with family and friends. Um, and, of course, wine started to play a big part in that as I, I got older and started to realize that, wine a lot a lot of wines not in a gallon jug it's in a 750 ml bottle and it has a cork in it um then it all of a sudden the world changed because studying wine drinking wine is a it can be it doesn't have to be let me be very clear that it's it's all good to just open wine and any time and drink it without worrying about what it is but if one wants it can be an extremely intellectual pursuit yeah Um, you know, in every bottle of wine, there's biochemistry, there's mm-hmm. botany, there's geology, yeah. there's you know, often politics, religion, geography, climatology, mm-hmm. um, all sorts of these things that each bottle of wine contains. And so for me, it really started to become um, an incredibly intellectual pursuit. I, I was, um, before I was at Hopkins, I was at Boston college getting my master's in developmental biology and uh mm. I, I, you know, as as a as a grad student, you get a stipend. You don't really have much money to spend. But I, so I ended up cooking at home a lot. But I also like to go out and buy uh, wine. And what I started doing was going to a wine store and buying a bottle of wine that I really didn't understand any of the words on the label. And I would bring it home and I would look it up in one of my wine books and find out where what the region was, what what was all about, what the grapes were in the bottle, and. uh I would just sort of continue to buy wines from that region and drink them until I felt I had a great grasp about that region. And then I would, would start the process over. And so in the two years I was at Boston College and well into the six years I was at Hopkins, I, I basically drank my way around the world um, and tried to you know figure it all out. And so by the time I was ready to open my restaurant, I, I had a pretty good knowledge probably way better knowledge of wine than actually of being a chef. Um, And thanks to guys like Rob Klink and Johnny Collins, who were the original chef and sous chef and many others um, who came after them, uh, who really taught me to be a a chef, we ended up being successful. But, you know, wine, wine, um, it's part of being a restaurateur. The whole beverage program is... Mm -hmm. It often equal to the, the food program and so very important in terms of your profitability as a restaurateur so knowing as much about the beverage program as a chef as you do about uh, the food program is crucial to being a successful chef owner of a restaurant you know unless you hire someone to manage the program but it's still really always back to you as as the chef owner of making the decisions and deciding what you're gonna what you're gonna put on that beverage list and how you're gonna sell it
0: awesome yeah that's great all about the wine and like the weather too right that year is also affects the wine yeah
1: that's what makes wine complicated not only do you have to learn about every region in the world but every year the whole thing has a reset and things start over so um, awesome. yes very yeah. very fun to to figure it all out
0: cool and back to uh, your family. Like, what kind of foods did your mm. mom make when you were growing up? Well, my, my,
1: you know, my mother's Sicilian. Mm. You know, I come from a mixed marriage, right? My mom's Sicilian and my father's from Naples. Mm. So uh, right there, we got a big problem. Um, <laughs> but, um, and also, you know, I grew up in the 70s mm-hmm. when it wasn't necessarily cool to be an immigrant. You know, now it's cool to be. Bilingual and proud of your heritage in the '70s, you were supposed to be an American. Mm. Um, you're supposed to be American, and so I was um, treated to two types of meals on a regular basis. One, one would be traditional Italian food that my mother's mother and her mother
0: cooked for her, like like pasta. And with, then I'm, are
1: you talking? Yes, yeah, risotto, mm-hmm. uh, pasta dishes. Um, noki mm. um you know but but, uh, but I, and it might consider it Mediterranean you know mm-hmm. meats roasted with with fresh herbs and garlic you know those types mm. of things mm. but unfortunately my mother you know wanting to be a American housewife the other type of meal I was uh, often exposed to was uh a bunch of crap that she got in all the <laughs> magazines like uh, and and it all required like Campbell's cream uh. of mushroom soup as one of the <laughs> ingredients you know so like tuna noodle casserole with cream of celery soup or <laughs> one time she made this thing where she she put sour cream on chicken and rubbed it in like crushed up ritz cracker crumbs <laughs> and baked it you know we often were subject to the um uh chinese food that came mm. in a can that she made rice and poured it over with like the crunchy noodles on top mm. so uh, th- those meals were less uh, memorable to me mm. Although certainly uh, it was
0: interesting to try them, but could you, um, but, um, could you tell up? the difference? Like, did you like one more? Yeah,
1: of course you can. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course you can. There's no doubt. <laughs> and you know, to this day, I'm pretty down. I, I'm down with a, a solid tuna noodle casserole. If you get me wrong. <laughs> um, the Ritz cracker thing, I could, I could be fine never having again. But. Um, <laughs> But you know it's uh it's for me it's more it feels more like home when I eat mm-hmm. more of an Italian or a Mediterranean diet, yeah, um than anything else, you know that being said, of course, man, we get sushi when we go out, we go to mm-hmm. Korean barbecue we we love all that type of food too, but um that's not what my wife and I and my mom still cooks at home,
0: cool, yeah. so like did you ever help when you were a kid?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and Sunday mornings, my sister and I would make my mom and dad breakfast in bed, you know, we'd get (laughs) up and we'd make eggs or pancakes or something. Uh, Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was cooking with, you know, the young age. I mean, obviously I wasn't, I didn't really start um, understanding cooking until I was on my own at college and then, you know, grad school and then Hopkins. um, When I really was, in a kitchen you know by myself and doing this everything the shopping you know the prepping and the preparation and so uh and i did i did spend time when i was in boston and and early on in um in my career in baltimore working you know staging on weekends in kitchens for free you know Mm -hmm. going in and chopping vegetables and and just being in in commercial kitchens just because i i that, like I said, back then it was more of a hobby, and it was mm-hmm. it was fun to do on a Saturday just go stage in someone's kitchen. So I, yeah. I did used to do that, but you know, eventually that morphed into really becoming my career
0: path. Awesome, yeah, I love staging as well. I uh, currently staging at Foraged uh, Chef Chris. Amendola. Yeah,
1: Chris Amendola is yeah. a lovely, lovely guy. A very mm-hmm. talented
0: chef. Yeah, yeah, he really is. So earlier you mentioned uh, some people who helped you learn how to be a chef. Can you talk about them a little more?
1: You know, I was fumbling around in kitchens around the city, but nothing that required any real major skill. You know, more like bar food and, mm. and simple stuff. Opening Corks was a huge jump for me in terms of um, skill level and what we what I envisioned executing as what we touted was a modern American menu. And uh, Rob Klink was the first executive chef and Johnny Collins was the sous chef. Those guys had been with Pauly Santy at Champagne Tony's.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I believe Rob is now very high up in the legal seafood organization. Mm. And I don't know where Johnny ended up, but some other guys who come through my kitchen, Mm -hmm. those guys, a lot of them have gone on to open their own restaurants or to, to be chefs in corporate environments. And, you know, those guys were the ones who were, I was writing, I was giving them the conceptual idea of the dishes and what I wanted, but those guys were really the masters at executing it in the beginning. Cause I really didn't have the skill set to really do it on my own. That, that didn't come for a few years later, but uh, those guys were great. And everyone who's been through my kitchen and there's been many, um, you know, it's a learning is always a two way street. The instructor always learns from the student. There's not, there's no one way in that environment. So anybody who I've worked with over the years has influenced in some way or another the the my cooking and the way I run the restaurant.
0: Hmm. Cool. So obviously this this topic is huge. The pandemic it's dr- yeah. drastically affecting uh, the f- the food and restaurant industry. Uh, whether it be yeah. closing restaurants or like making them earn much less money. So what are your thoughts? for how the restaurant industry can survive.
1: Well, first I'll just tell you I'm so glad I'm not in it anymore <laughs> because God, it's just really terrible out there for all these folks. Yeah. I mean, uh it's really it's really hard to make money in the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. And and that's when you're a hundred percent full all the time. To be closed for that long and then now to be open at some sort of diminished capacity. Um it's just, it's just got to be really hard. The the guys that are that are surviving are living off their savings accounts, or getting yeah. these grants, or these loan, you know, these payment loan things, or um, this type of things. I mean, you're 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 not. No one, nobody is making a profit at yeah. this point. It's, they're just not. I mean, mm-hmm. so there's by definition is going to be a bunch of attrition. I mean, and that's that's too bad, you know, in a lot of ways. I also think, you know, just like the stock market, the the restaurant scene was getting a little too crowded and could use a real correction
2: mm. to
1: sort of um, to, to get out people who are not um, really making it um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, that said, I never wish anybody bad in business. Everybody who opens anything puts their heart and soul into it. Um, but, you know, just like me, I I just didn't want to be in the restaurant business anymore. And, Mm -hmm. and the restaurant, you know, the performance of the restaurants were probably showing it. And so being, it's the hardest thing in the world to walk away. But for me, it was the right decision. And I think a lot of people who were on the fence of deciding whether to walk away, this might have helped push a bunch of people over the edge. I can't, tell you, not just in the restaurant business, how many older folks I've talked to you have finally retired, even though they probably could have retired a bunch of years ago, they just kept going because mm-hmm. they didn't know any different. And now they're so much happier. So there might be a silver lining to this, but, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's making any money and we'll see how long people can last. I know that uh, but a, a lot of people are evolving. People are now becoming mm-hmm. grocery stores almost, mm-hmm. you know, selling product and getting things for for people, and what you know, what's great is um, the public has just been so generous to support a lot of these people. Yeah, you know, giving servers much bigger tips. I know that I tip more now. You know, we're we're a little lucky up here in, in Catskills. There's very little, very very few cases of coronavirus in our area. Mm. There's our county is fourteen thousand square miles, and we have just under over a hundred cases mm. in the whole county. So we're a little less reluctant to go out to eat i mean we still only go where we can sit outside but yeah i know that we're we're tipping you know these servers i personally tipping them exorbitant tips just so they, mm-hmm. they can survive because they're not waiting on the number of tables yeah that they normally would you know and and we try to get out and support as many of the people around here as we can as often as we can so that they do they do have some revenue stream some cash flow um, but uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I I'm not optimistic. I think it's it's a shitty deal for a lot of people. And um, mm-hmm. you know, even Scola has been living off its bank account um, for yeah. the last you know five months. I mean, we mm-hmm. haven't been able to do classes, and we have been paying our rent and our bills, and uh, and it's just just living off the the savings account, you know, the the rainy day fund,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which you know. It, we're starting to get to the point where it's uncomfortable, uh, at an uncomfortable level. So we have opened to do some small classes and just to try and start cash flow. But I don't. I mean, I would love to know to feel that we're going to have a holiday season like we always have a holiday season. But um, as yeah. time goes on, I'm less and less optimistic that that's going to happen. And so, a lot of people they make their big money during the holidays, and yeah. if they if they're not what they could be, I think early 2021 is when we'll see a rash of closings and businesses in general definitely restaurants just not opening their doors in 2021
0: yeah that this really sucks um are you scared that that um the local i don't know mexican restaurant is going to become like a chipotle in the future
1: no i i don't uh, corporations aren't doing corporate restaurants you know me mcdonald's is doing okay because they have a drive-through but those sort of chef-driven concepts like chipotle and all that where people are scared to go in they're not doing very well either i think um corporate usually has a much bigger stash of cash but they also have a way larger number in terms of their operating expenses and their fixed Mm. costs so it's not good for them either and i i think Opening a restaurant always seems to be like someone's dream, a lot of people's mm-hmm. dream. You talk to a lot of people like, you know, I don't want to own a restaurant. Of course, the fruit sorts out of my mouth or don't. It's a very stupid <laughs> venture. But once there's all these closures and things start to creep back to normal, you're you're gonna also see another, you know, another boom in openings yeah. of people who are gonna sweep in. You know, there's an article that um, real estate's down ten percent in New York City because there's not a lot, you know, people. A lot of people have left. I mean, <laughs> I'm guessing that's going to go down again. And so, what that allows is an opportunity now for people to come in and sign leases at mm. much less money than they would have, which is great because mm. your fixed costs in owning a restaurant are what can really kill you because yeah. you have to pay your rent every mm. month, right? You know, if nobody, if nobody comes to the restaurant, you don't have to buy food and you don't have to call in the hourly guys but you always have to pay your rent. So yeah. if real estate's going down, once this thing's over, there's going to be deals to be had, and there's going to be people poised to go out there and open some cool new places, I think. I mean, that mm-hmm. I, I feel that's definitely going to happen.
0: Okay, so there are positives and negatives. Yeah.
1: Well, it's all negative,
0: but um, uh, well, okay. there, there can
1: be some light at the end of this tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, I just would have rather have never had to drive through the tunnel.
0: Yeah. So, going back to uh, supporting restaurants, do you have any favorite uh, Baltimore restaurants?
1: Look, like I said, there's a million guys doing great things. Obviously, mm-hmm. the Foreman Wolf group always satisfies and always always executes well. The, the Atlas group is doing really great things. Um, the smaller independent guys like Larder
2: mm-hmm. and Comptoir
1: de yeah. Van. Um, obviously, Chad Gauss and his projects are always off the hook. Food Market, La Food Marqueta. You know, Sergio Vitali Aldo's is the preeminent place. You know, you've got the guys at the Prime Rib always killing it. Mm-hmm. Jimmy at the Capitol Grill always does a great job. Um, you know, the little places in my neighborhood in Federal Hill, like Bibelos, which is, in my mind, the best Lebanese food in the city. Ed Kim at Me and You Noodle Bar. thats They're mm-hmm. doing great. Um, we go to um, Jose, owns the um, Italian place. I'm blanking. It's right on the corner around my neighborhood. We love that. Um, there, there's, it's, there's great. I mean, it's, you know, they say it's hard to swing a dead cat and not hit a good restaurant these days in Baltimore. So, um, so it's, there, there's just a million places to go. I think a lot of times it just depends what you're in the mood for.
0: Yeah. Before we end, do you have any, uh, like advice for me as I, uh, venture into the culinary world?
1: Yeah. Go, learn to, learn to program video games. I think you're going to do much better. <laughs> 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 I mean, here's the deal. Um, it's long hours, it's hard work. It's the, it's a job where you're working while everybody else is playing, Mm -hmm. you know, in all the years I own restaurants, I missed all my cousins' weddings, all my aunts and uncles' funerals. Um, it's, it's a business where it's high work and low margin. So you you work so hard for so very little. Um, but the fact of the matter is if, if you if you're bitten by the hospitality bug, there's nothing that can get rid of it. You're gonna go do it. You're gonna work hard. You're gonna have fun. Um, you know you may not be buying that second home in the Hamptons anytime <laughs> soon, but um, but it, it's a it's a very satisfying and very fulfilling career. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there is yep. immediate gratification. There's nothing better than feeding people for the big events in their lives, whether it's birthdays or anniversaries or weddings or even funerals. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're always there. You're always providing comfort. You're always taking care of people. I mean, we're the only organism on the planet that takes the time to, to cook mm-hmm. and prepare their food in a loving way and sit down and eat it. So I can't say enough about how great the profession is. And how hospitality is a really a true calling. But you know, man,
0: it's going to be tough. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm not going to lie.
0: And my mom says um, the exact you, same thing. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you're, 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 you know, we always say youth is wasted on the young. But I'll tell you what, old people do know a few things.
0: Did you just call me old? Mm, I should have said, should have said m-
1: mature, experienced people. Um, know a few things i'm old so i don't know You know. <laughs> i'm an old guy so there you go
0: <laughs> before we end do you have any plugs uh are you starting classes again
1: yeah you can go to scolacooks.com of course we uh we're keeping them small 12 people mm-hmm. um everybody unlike the old days where everybody cooked together everybody's gonna cook their own food mm. um which you know to me you were there you saw everybody runs around and rubs yeah. elbows that- you know, it's going to take a little bit away from the experience that we try to create. But you know, the fact of the matter is, it it will be fun, and you will get to to cook. And you know, part of the deal is being in that super big, super tricked out kitchen that we have, Mm -hmm. you know, it'll be fun. So yeah, you can start taking classes, we're still doing private events that that we, we don't limit the number, because we feel that if people know each other, that's Everybody in the pandemic talks about knowing your inner circle and who you can interact with. And mm-hmm. so private events we're, we're pretty comfortable with. Um, we've done some online stuff. But, yeah, we're, we're starting up classes and we're only booking them on the schedule two weeks out um, mm-hmm. to see how the pandemic plays out and how, how we feel, how the classes work. Um, you know, we're doing all the things that the CDC recommends, you know, distancing, mm-hmm. hand washing, sanitizing, all that stuff um so you know yeah i think you're i think you can go and, and cook at school again awesome. um it won't be exactly the same but it'll be fun and i'm i'm, I'm optimistic that by the holidays maybe it'll be mm. more similar to to what you're used to but yes you can definitely uh check it out and if you want to learn anything about the farm it's uh, StricklandHollowFarm.com. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. that's our website and it'll tell you we also we host weddings and private events at the barn and do all sorts of things up here. So yeah, and if you want to take a trip, the Catskills are going to be lovely in another 2 weeks. <laughs> you start to see fall creep in and so there's there's nothing better than the Catskill Mountains
0: in the fall. Awesome, sounds great. Chef Jerry Pellegrino, yep. thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Sammy, it's been a pleasure, man, and good <laughs> luck. Go do great things, I know you will.
0: Thank you. You as well. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this episode of Hey Chef. This podcast is brought to you by CCBC Student Life's New Media Collective, CCBC's Communication and Media Studies Department, and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Produced by Beth Bonick and Brian Kim. Artwork by Sammy Bonick and Shannon Design. Theme music by 905 Productions. Thank you to WYPR 881 FM, Baltimore's number one news talk station, and WYPR senior producer Bob White for being our studio engineer.